And it's about our marketing technology stack. Are we doing personalization? Are we doing retargeting? Are we measuring it all with the analytics? And you know what I basically have to say to that? That doesn't matter at all. I mean, there's a huge ignorance about what you're trying to persuade, and that's the human mind. And that hasn't changed in evolutionary terms at all. Newer marketing is the new concept of the day, brought to you by our guest, Tim Ash, who was also kind enough to share a copy of his new book, Unleash Your Primal Brain with me, warranting a follow-up for sure. It's an interesting read and sheds light on the way our species evolved throughout history, tracing that behavior all the way to how it interfaces with us this very day. I think most people would agree marketing goes hand-in-hand with psychology, but the degree of which was something I learned through this discussion. Additionally, we touch on a number of important and timely subjects, both in and out of e-commerce, making this episode a blast to record. Tim Ash, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? Uh, great, Joseph. Happy to be with you. Happy to have you here too. It continues to uh, astound me. Uh, every every guest adds to the scope of e-commerce in, in its own right, but also uh, business and the continued the continuation of tying business into you know consumer behavior and psychology and all of um, what gets to the the core and the essence really of human behavior. So a little bit of a foreshadowing of what we were talking about today. <laughs> but Tim Ash, opening question for you. Not that it's a contractual obligation or anything, but I'm just going to do it anyways. Tell us what you do and what are you up to these days. Let's start with what I've done. I uh, studied computer science, cognitive science, did my PhD work, although I never finished in artificial intelligence, what would now be called neural networks and self-learning systems. Uh, And then I had a long career in internet marketing. Uh, Specifically, I ran a leading conversion rate optimization agency called SiteTuners for many, many years. And say we're one of the original OGs, original gangsters in that field, uh, created over 1.2 billion in value for the Expedias, Facebooks, uh, Nestle's uh, of the world, Google. And um, after running that, I'd been focusing a lot on, uh, I guess you'd say, how to market and how to persuade people. And that took me back to my roots and my graduate work, which is about persuasion more broadly and psychology. And I realized that at the root of it all is evolutionary psychology. Our brain evolved for a reason. We picked up stuff along the way. So I've been focusing on these universal things that uh, describe how we act, why we behave the way we do, how we really make decisions. And of course, it can be very powerfully applied to marketing as a, the crossover is called neuromarketing. So uh, that's what my focus is now, keynote speaking, uh, a lot of executive advisory, as well as my new book, which we can talk about in a bit. I'm more than uh, eager to, to talk about that book for certain. So there are some, there's some terminology here that, you know, we get to bring to the, to the program really for the first time. And neuromarketing is, uh, is the term that, uh, that stands out to, to me. So is it a strategy all of its own, or is it, an element and a component that you find resides within really any strategy that, you know, we're aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it's more of a foundational. I mean, strategy and tactics are both sort of on the implementation side. But if you want to understand what you're influencing, it's the human brain. I, I mean, the technology is what we're focused on as internet marketers. And it's about our marketing technology stack. Are we doing personalization? Are we doing retargeting? Are we measuring it all with analytics? And you know what I basically have to say to that? That doesn't matter at all. I mean, there's a huge ignorance about what you're trying to persuade, and that's the human mind. And that hasn't changed 
in evolutionary terms at all. So if you want to have a long durable career in marketing, you should understand this foundational stuff about how the brain works, how it evaluates risk, what moves it to act, those kind of things. So I'm focused more on the universal layers. And I think the neuromarketing and the underpinnings of it, which is evolutionary psychology, is absolutely the starting point for anybody doing marketing. Well, here's a disconnect that comes up uh, a, a number of times, and it's certainly a, a disconnect that uh, I'm I, I encounter uh, quite a bit too. Is we have the the seller, we have the brand owner. They have they have their own human mind. You know, they've right. got one. Everybody everybody's given one. It's part of the starter kit. And <laughs> and and one would think that you know we're all sharing this uh, this the same organism, although it di- it diverts and millions upon millions of ways. And then, then we have this disconnect between us and then the audience and not being able to uh, to understand what it is that the audience wants. Part of it is, you know, there's one of us and there's potentially tens of not thousands of hundreds of thousands, not millions of them. So where is this disconnect coming from where the seller isn't able to find the answers in their own mind that they can't seem to find in their uh, in their audience? Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. I have three answers to that one because it's okay, such great. a good question. So first of all, we're experts in our own thing. In this case, you know, we run an e-commerce website. We know everything about the product selection and the fulfillment and, and how running online campaigns. So we tend to overlook what our audience won't. There are millions of little friction points and things like that. So we need to kind of look at it with a beginner's mind. I've always, I built uh, my former agency site tuners on the basis of basically being never satisfied, always advocating for the end user saying, hey, from their perspective, this sucks. Yes, this is confusing or um, they lost the information sent. They can't figure out how to take the next step. So basically, we tend to suffer from what I call greedy marketer syndrome. You know, we're, that's the second problem. We're experts in our own thing. And then we're just trying to ram stuff down the sales funnel and say, let's focus on the bottom of it. And uh, I hope dollar signs come out. We're not really supporting the complete customer journey or the things that a lot of people need before making the buy decision. So that's the second one. And then the third thing I would say is there's a really a, almost a universal ignorance about how the mind works. We think that we're rational creatures and we tend to design things for, well, here, you know, you get an 8% discount if you sign up for a year, making me do math and stuff like that. And buying decisions, all decisions, anything that we want to do and act on is completely irrational, run by the subconscious mind. And I think that I very rarely met marketers that really understand that to such a fundamental level that that's where they operate from. So greedy marketer syndrome, um, not understanding that we're really irrational and being experts in our own thing. That's where the the biggest sources of disconnect, I would say, are. And speaking along those lines, another thing that comes up is there is no shortage of, of, of data to collect, um, whether you know we're, we're talking about people still working in the retail space um, or even obviously here in, in the e-commerce space. And you know, I've uh, I've I've done sales for 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 a number of years, and uh, happy with some, but not all of it. And what we found was, you know, one of the most prominent ways to sell a consumer on a product was story selling, was appealing mm. to that to that to that emotional side <laughs> and and building that connection. And so there's going to be a lot of me using the word disconnect, and I'll try to you know space it out as best I can, but. <laughs> You have all of the, we're, we're, we're swimming, if not drowning in data. And yet it seems like that last hurdle to, to really you know, connect with the customer to, to get the conversion 
all takes place in that nebulous gray area, emotional monkey brain part where we have no, Mm -hmm. we don't really have a way to quantify it. So has there been an attempt to quantify it? Like has, has anybody gotten close to figuring out what is the real psychology or science going on behind that part? That's frankly a mystery. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a golden age of um, understanding the brain and psychology and there's people working in, lots of different silos, whether it's medical imaging or behavioral economics uh, or sales and persuasion techniques, there's there's lots of ways of attacking it. Uh, but I think that we are kind of cracking the skull open and it's, it is the last frontier. There is a lot of ignorance. I'd say the human mind is literally the most complicated object in the universe. So 100 billion neurons, that's a lot of stuff going on in there. Uh, so we have to focus on that is my point. Again, it's about durability to me. It's not about, um, you know, well, it's the latest technique or what's, uh, in other words, I don't care if it's hologram suppositories or whatever the next technology <laughs> is, or we go back to Google glass, right? That doesn't matter. What we're trying to influence is the same. It's just the channel to which through which we're trying to influence it. So, uh, that's, that's kind of my approach. One conversation that I had um, previously with uh, Bob Braham and uh, and his uh, service, uh, famous, is you know about um, uh, enhancing the the mobile experience mm-hmm. and you know trying to you know use that as a means to convert customers because lots of people are using their mobile phones. Sure, um, I don't remember exactly where I read it. Uh, we we're somewhere like yo, they're they're trying to jam chips in our brains. Somebody else is like, no, they're not. They don't have to. We got the phones. We're we yeah, have these things <laughs> that's right. You wake up, you look at it. You go to bed, you look at it. When you're in the bathroom, you look at it. It's it's omnipresent. Yeah, I, I'd love to give your take on the uh, what you've observed as to be the relationship between you know our device usage and where you th- you think we're going um, as a species in terms of you know is the mobile phone going to be the end the end game for for it are we going to get all the way to like star trek where you know we're still using our, our mobile devices well i think that um if i'm not a futurist but I'll, i play one on tv so i'll throw out a couple <laughs> of things uh the the first is i think that um, everything has to be tied to the human body and how we perceive things so uh, holding something in our hand and staring at a small screen, that's still not the natural evolution of it. It's more like Minority Report, if I don't know if you remember that Tom Cruise movie where he's yeah. visually moving things around and there's some kind of holographic projection that that's in, in front of him. So we want to kind of be in the in the world, moving, talking, gesturing. I think typing on a tiny keyboard is is not where the last stop. Uh, there's a lot more things going to voice on mobile, but even the screen itself is a problem. Eventually, it's going to be just kind of a flick of the wrist and you're projecting something on a nearby flat surface. That's how we're going to get our visuals as part of it. Okay, well, I'm happy to get your, your take on that one. All right, so let's talk about this book, uh, Unleash Your Primer Brain. We've we've warmed we've warmed up to it. To me, it sounds like you know it explores uh, that that part of us that is the most deeply rooted. It's not you don't necessarily have to be you know say in e-commerce or or in marketing to 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 read this book and derive value from that. Um, is that is that true? Is it just is yeah, it really yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I would say I wrote it. It's a you know, non 
technical overview of the development of the brain. And, and uh, it's an exciting ride. I, I wrote it to also be an audiobook and to be easily translated into other languages. I recorded the audiobook. So I read it to be a read through. There's not a single table or footnote or citation in there. I do have a recommended reading list in the back, but it's, it's, a, it's a wild ride through the human mind. And basically it's what we picked up along the way or from the earliest life on earth, um, reptiles, ma mammals, our primate cousins. And then the last part's what makes us distinctly human, including storytelling, for example, is one of the things you mentioned earlier. And uh, so I, I unpack all of that. And it, so it's not for marketers specifically. I mean, if you read this book, you get something out of it regardless of your blinders. So you could read it for business, like broadly speaking, it could be leadership or marketing or sales. You could read it for relationships, for culture, for gender differences, storytelling, all of that stuff. And you can read it for personal development, understanding the importance of sleep, how memory really works, learning, uh, decision-making and risk, all of those things. So really it's, a, it's, it's the operating system for the 8 billion people on the planet, the things that we all share in common not our individual differences, as you mentioned earlier. So this was a, a rare opportunity for me to um, ask something that really goes on in, in, in my own mind. Um, so you know, uh, bear with me, audience. Maybe uh, you will all uh, associate with this as well. This is a part of the, the psych, my, my inner psychology that I don't seem to understand, which is you know, we all have our inner voice. There's that little you know, narrator going inside, you know, talking and talking. And it seems to me that the actual compulsion for the decisions I make have nothing to do with the inner narrator. It's that the inner right. narrator is just there to like justify or validate or contextualize the decisions that are coming from upper management. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's tricky because I, I don't know exactly like how far along you've come in answering in any one given question that I can throw at you, but I'm just going to give it a shot because why not? Is what role really is the inner voice supposed to play in guiding our actual decision-making process? Yeah, that, that's that's a very interesting question. I think what we need to do is essentially invert the 2000 years since classical Greece that we've been taught, you know, that the rational mind is what makes us distinct and unique and better than other animals and it's in charge. And we think of it as sort of as the charioteer and driving and directing and guiding the wild horses of our emotions that are creating the, the momentum, right? And actually that's backwards. The wild horses are running free and once in a while, if there's no immediate risk to us, and if it's something that we've never encountered before and is novel, that we kick it up to the conscious brain. But you're absolutely right. That conscious brain, as opposed to the primal brain that I talk about in the book, is really after the fact explaining things. You can see through medical imaging where a decision is made, a certain part of the brain is activated, and then we're able to verbalize it a fraction of a second later. But that verbalization is not the decision. We don't have access to our subconscious or why we really made it. And it's an after the fact rationalization. In fact, I think it was science fiction author, great uh, Robert Heinlein, who said, man is not a rational animal, he's a rationalizing animal. So we rationalize things after the fact and come up with a quote unquote reason why we did something, but it's total bullshit. So this is where I want to really ask you about some of the, the practical methods, um, even some of the ones that you've been able to, uh, to apply for yourself. So, you know, a person uh, gets up and I would argue that the most important hour of the day 
is probably that first hour. It sets the pace for the rest of the day. And even just being able to wake up on a proper sleep cycle alone is, is essential. So, I mean, it's the, the importance of it is determined even before somebody even wakes up. So I should, I should also uh, quantify because I just want to um, also use maybe the feedback that you've received to actually understand. Um, how long has the book been available for? Uh, the book came out this spring, so it's, uh, it's brand new. And, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I just wanted to to check whether or not you've had a chance to receive feedback on that, and then that can oh, be plenty. Uh, okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> Along the- great. So, what have you found to be the most effective way for people to wake up and actually start to get that uh, that that primal brain to, I guess, cooperate with what it is the rational mind has laid out for the day? Yeah. Well, I'm gonna. You said I would argue that the first hour is the most important. Well, I'm gonna argue back at you um, because I think it's actually the least important. Okay. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you you absolutely hit on the key. The key to all sur- survival of all life on the planet is sleep, proper sleep. In fact, there's no creature that lives uh, longer than a few days that doesn't have some form of sleep. Uh, dolphins, which are marine mammals, obviously, they need to breathe. So they figured out to alternate the, the two hemispheres of their brain. So one's asleep and resting while the other one is not drowning. <laughs> and but migratory birds actually take micro naps and drop out of the sky, but don't quite hit the ground as they do these long migrations, but they need sleep too. It's not optional. It's life support for everything. And so the way you go to sleep is the most important. That last hour, what you've experienced or consciously put into your mind in that last hour before sleep gets processed about five to six times more than the rest of the day's events combined. And so anything you can do to kind of load up an interesting creative problem that you've thought about or that you need to figure out, sleep on it. It works. Creativity is uncorked during sleep, proper seven to nine hours sleep, including several REM cycles. Um, and, and also anything that you learn that day, any mental or physical skill, if you don't sleep on it, it doesn't get encoded as a, into long-term memory. You don't get the benefit of the training. Uh, so, and then also... Sleep calibrates for human beings the nuanced social interactions we have. If you don't get sleep, you get paranoid. You think people are set up against you. You misjudge the micro expressions on their face as being aggressive. So you can't function in any kind of society or group without sleep. So for all of these reasons, sleep is really crucial. And so one of the habits that I have is I do a little gratitude journal. It's not like I write a lot. I just have a bunch of bullet points that just remind me of good things that happened that day. And I write them down by in pencil um, in my little notebook just before I go to sleep. And then that sets the tone for the following day. Lately in, in the last uh, uh, couple of weeks, when uh, a habit I had adopted almost uh, close to that, but I had, what I did, did was top three failures of the day, and then top three uh, successes of the day. Hmm. Um, and what I found was I wanted to take some time also to hone in on, you know, what are the mistakes? What are the things that I, I didn't feel I did particularly well, as well as, you know, focus on the, on the, on the achievement size as well. Now, this 22, as you said, you know, you're going you're to argue back at me. And I thought, yeah, this is a debate. I don't know if I'm going to, to hold my own. In. Just, you know, <laughs> well, well, here's the, here's how I would so, do it. Yeah. I, th- I think you need to consider both, but doing it at different times. So for example, uh, at night, I would just do the gratitude part. And that's why religious people, for example, they say their prayers, they remember, you know, all the things to be grateful for they're kind of blessing themselves and the people around them, if you will, at the end of the night before they go to sleep. That's the right thing to do in the morning when your mind is fresh and most creative and you have some reserves of that conscious mind executive function, it's called. That's the time to think about problems and how to deal with them and tackle your biggest ones first. I had a mentor once that told me, kiss the biggest frog. 
Don't put off, don't do your emails and, and do all those menial tasks. Take your hardest problem and tackle that in the morning. And so do you find if you were to, I, we're getting very much into time management here, but I, I'm, this is important for me anyway. Um, <laughs> so if you were to plan out your day, would you plan it out in, in the morning and then set the pace for the day at that point? Or do you, or do you find yourself more planning it the, the night before? Uh, I would say that block out, well, the planning should be block out time. And that should be done in advance. My, my friend Nir Eyal wrote a great book called Indistractable. He also wrote one called Hooked, which is about how to make habit-forming pro uh, products. But Indistractable is all about how to, of course, avoid those distractions. And, and I think uh, blocking out time is key. That doesn't mean you have to fill every single part of your day, but it does mean you should be intentionally thinking about how you're going to allocate and prioritize your time. And, and as part of that, you should have unstructured time. I'm going to you know, do nothing, or I'm going to take a nap in the mid early afternoon. That's something I do often and just schedule that in. It's not a problem to let yourself rest, let your mind rest. You can't always be going a hundred miles an hour. That's not productive. All that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, 4am club bullshit. Uh, again, pardon my French, unless you're going to sleep at eight and you're getting a full eight hours of sleep, you should not be part of the 4am club. That's not productivity. That's just actually self-destructive and it's going to kill your mental health. Yeah. And, and for what it's worth, it doesn't, uh, people are free to swear in this program. We've, we've, uh, I, I'm not keeping track, but I think we're around like 12 to 14 F-bombs so far. So yeah, that's no, no, no worries. About what that. the fuck? Okay. We just get made it to 15. The feedback part of it was such a, um, a a crucial subject for really each individual. And you said you've received tons of feedback. So I am uh, curious to ask, you know, what's some of the feedback that maybe you didn't anticipate? What's been some of the, the standout um, responses that you've gotten to it? That well, as I was writing the book, people are saying, hey, this is great, Tim. You've unpacked kind of the evolutionary arc and how that made us who we are. Um, but I actually, as a result of feedback, added a, a, a final chapter called uh, how to be more primal and it has some of these tips including getting sleep and other things uh, about how to do that on a personal level and the importance of those things and again uh, describing why that's important um, from an evolutionary perspective for me it's only I've, it's crossed my my radar here and there uh, i i never had a chance to get too much into it but i would absolutely love to hear about you know your your experience with it and so for people to understand here's what i do know and it's not much but here's what i do know you know you have hardware and we talk about the, the physical machines you have your software which is the programs the apps that are running on the hardware and then wetware is us the human beings yep yeah okay that's that's as far as far as i know but um, in, 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 in creating this book and in, in your, in your continued pursuits and even in your, you know, in your, in your history, working in, in e-commerce and digital marketing for so long is, you know, when did wetware cross your, your radar and oh, what is from, it about? from yeah. the, from the very beginning, like I yeah. said, cognitive science was one of my undergraduate majors back at the university of California, San Diego. I double majored in that in computer engineering. So it's always been kind of software and wetware. And to, mm -hmm. to me, the most interesting thing is definitely the wetware. And I'm a, there's a lot going on in 
artificial intelligence. Right now, we're training machines to from large data sets to extract kind of human-like levels of appropriate responses and everything from medical diagnosis to you know, other fields. And it's really quite amazing. But what we're really doing is we're not writing programs anymore. We're just saying, let's take the hive mind, the collective experience of millions of people based on their actual actions and let that guide us. So in a way, artificial intelligence is being trained up on lots and lots of human experiences. And that's what's making it smarter. It's not like there's some brilliant programmer that's writing code somewhere. Oh, okay. See, so this is, I guess, a bit of a, a misconception on my part is, is thinking um, specifically that it only relates to, to humans, but it's actually more than that. It's the relationship between you know, us as you know, a hardware running uh, internal software and how that is um, providing information so that machines are uh, starting to pick up on these things uh, on their own, and you and you. So you had mentioned you mentioned it before at the beginning as well. Is the is the self learning process? Mm-hmm. Now myself and maybe others have seen have seen Terminator. So you know there are <laughs> you know, people, we, people, we do get uh, uh, for some people you know, the 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 hairs uh, rise up. So what can you tell us about the you know the objectives of this? And yeah, you know, well, how, I, d- yeah. I don't know that there are objectives. If you want to read a really good book, I'm just going to deflect that by saying there's much sure. smarter people than I have that have thought about this. My friend Mo, Mo Gadot, um, he's written a couple of books. Solve for Happy is one, which is also fantastic. But he just wrote one called Scary Smart, and it's about the approaching singularity. In other words, uh, when AI becomes sentient and what we can do in the very brief time that's left in order to be able to at least influence the course of that is after that, all bets are off. I mean, when, when machines get smart enough to say, Hey, human beings are inefficient, there's good chance. They'll try to kind of like work us out of the system in one way or another. I'm not talking about necessarily Terminator robots, but, but um, just kind of, sideline us and these things take on a a momentum and uh, an emergent quality of their own for example you can look at a million snowflakes and they're all unique and wonderful but by looking at a snowflake you can never predict an avalanche that's an emergent property of millions of snowflakes and in the same way your smart um, door sensor, your Siri, your Alexa, when they're all talking to each other and turning on your coffee pots and opening your garage doors, those are relatively simple actions. But we just cannot imagine what the system dynamics of that is going to be like when there are you know, billions of them in, operating in the world in the wild. I guess the 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 part that I enjoy in in using my imagination on this is to somewhat visualize, you know, what society will, will look like and what society will, will function like. And again, you know, there, as you say, there's, uh, there's other, uh, um, uh, experts on the subject who've delved into this, um, much further. So you'll feel free to just have fun with this, which is, <laughs> okay. I, I hear about this and, you know, we, we hear about, um, automation. That was a, that was a big subject, um, uh, last presidential cycle and, uh, and in tying into what we're discussing here. And I guess the, the vision that I have for the future is that, you know, people still want to work. People still want to do things, but it's all going to be within the the fields that, well, this machines probably don't really have a hand in creative fields, um, the arts, um, uh, sports, competition, um, the the Olympics, the enter- entertainment industry, more more free time for people to to do as they please, mm-hmm. and to and just focus on the, on that kind of a healthy competition. So, 
I, it's a bit, it's a utopian view of, uh, of where we're going to go. You know, somebody walks into uh, a McDonald's uh, and just like taps on the screen and, and the food shows up. Is there going to be a person there? I don't know. Maybe they'll just have a few concierge just to keep people company. But it, it's that, not utopian yeah. if McDonald's is still around killing you with that crap food, but by the way, <laughs> I used to eat a lot of McDonald's. I stopped doing that a long time ago. I, I, I still, I, I'm just yeah. joking. I'm just giving no, you a I, hard I'm, time. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, McDonald's isn't particularly good. Uh, somebody, uh, a YouTuber that I watched, he said, yeah, yeah, stop. Uh, McDonald's, a single McDonald's meal is more harmful to you than a pack of cigarettes. And so I, I took that advice and started smoking. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I, 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 <laughs> uh, so, so again, in, in, in having fun with this is, and then we'll move on to, because I also want to talk about the, the landing page optimization and tying in some of the uh, um, um, someone we talked about in that is um, where would you like, where, I don't know, what's, what's your utopian vision of, uh, of society, whether or not. I don't know that it is a utopian vision. What we're seeing actually is that um, when you don't need people before we used animals, you know, we used draft horses, we used wind power and windmills and, you know, in Holland and we tried that that was then the industrial revolution. We used, you know, fossil fuels and steam to move things. And as you said, what's happening now is more and more is moving into kind of a, a mental realm. The problem is it's pretty easy to harness all that. So it's easy to exploit right now in the U S we have a hundred year, high of income inequality and so so in the gilded age it was the railroad robber barons that concentrated the power now it's the it's the teslas and the amazons and the googles of the world and what you end up with is not something utopian we're seeing it now you end up with uber you know their commercial is everyone needs a side hustle really just to live like a human being in a civilized society i need a side hustle screw that so i think it actually creates opportunities to concentrate wealth upward and um, that corrupts the political process and basically serves the interests of the one percent i and at some point when that gets unsustainable usually you have some kind of uh, violent or cataclysmic revolution of sorts uh, when people just you know, feel they're being exploited and it's too unfair that's something else that comes out of our evolutionary psychology this it's like, screw this, half a loaf is better than none. If you're really giving me just 1% and you're keeping 99% for yourself, that's unfair. And I will actually make things worse for myself in order to not let you have that. Uh, so I'm actually predicting something more negative and cataclysmic, not like we're all artists and Olympic athletes. I respect that. I so so what I'll what I'll say is you know being I I've, I've been a freelancer for for ten years right so you know I'm part of the the, the side hustle generation and in, in 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 some in all my sales jobs I was well in one of them the whole division was let go and another one uh, a new district manager comes in and we were all let go she just wanted to score <laughs> and so like and in I was in some cases you know I did I, I I was quite good at the job and it didn't matter it was just right. it, was, it was a loyalty thing um, and then I started pursuing. Um, uh, uh, this in, in editing and in podcasting. And in, so, you know, in, in thanks to places like, uh, Upwork Fiverr, not so much, but, you know, Upwork and, and Craigslist and all of these, uh, these platforms, I was really able to actually, um, advance myself. So, you know, you have other people, you know, in their, their, their driving around in, in, in Ubers. And I understand that the profit margins are, are, are razor thin. Uh, it's not exactly, uh, su sustainable, right. but it is giving people options. Um, because if you just look at the money you make, 
Yeah, it's pretty depressing. But what you can also look at is the human connection of every time somebody's in the car that can open up a new uh, realm of possibilities. Who knows who who you have a conversation with? Maybe they have an opportunity for you, and next thing you know, you're not driving Ubers anymore, and now you're a chauffeur. Well, by the way, as soon as, soon as self-driving technology gets good enough and fleet vehicles of electric cars, you know, that's just a few years away. Um, then there won't be a need for drivers. But also, I mean, but is it the highest and best use on of people on the planet to be driving taxis, essentially, and by another name? Um, I, I would argue that's not necessarily <laughs> the best yeah. either. So, so I get what you're saying. You, some people will benefit from it to to some extent, but really, uh, I don't know that this kind of automation is a good thing for society. We're just always on. We're always sleep deprived. We're always stressed out. We never feel like we're off duty. We're always mm-hmm. feeling like we're falling behind. There's this hyper competitive capitalism without a social safety net. I personally judge to be a problem, not the solution. Well, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to keep on uh, talking with you about this because I think this is all really interesting uh, subject matter as well. But the the other side of it that I wanted to, um, to, to say too is, you know, we talked to people who they've They've, they've used Amazon, for instance, as a, as a means for success. They've been able to run their, their business through it. Um, one episode that I think you might uh, like, I don't know if you ever met or heard of Dr. Robin Gaster, but he talks uh, greatly about what would be the end game for something like Amazon. So, you know, Jeff Bezos, you can credit him for giving a lot of people means to take matters into their own hands, run their own business. But on the other hand, the amount of wealth that he has amassed it goes beyond competition and it just like yeah, you said, I mean, it just look, goes look, into as, as far as you know, the the practical stuff is pretty pretty obvious right around 1980 uh wages went flat productivity continued to increase at a straight line that delta is being harvested you're being skimmed for money essentially so everyone assumes that there's some american dream and we can all be jeff bezos but the fact is there's one jeff bezos there's only room for one jeff bezos the rest of us are his cattle uh and you know you think you're making things easier for yourself by being able to order something on amazon and it arrives next day or within an hour if you're in new york well you know that's great but we don't talk about the externalities and the price people are paying for that and the and the the quality of people's lives in those warehouses or any number of other things so again i I don't i don't want to go down a rabbit hole unless you want to but i definitely have some strong opinions on that I, I, I like talking about it. I really do. Um, you just, know, it's so, it's so it's like, like and if you talk about it, yeah. these Amazon um, conferences and Amazon sellers, I mean, it, it's this really actually kind of sick thing in e-commerce where you can't do very well without Amazon, but they're separating you from your customers, right? You don't have direct access to your customers. They control everything. They're putting the squeeze on you in terms of whatever arbitrary fees they want to charge. And it's worse than that. They're actually using you for market research. So if they notice you're selling something well, they'll go knock it off in China and have an Amazon basics version of it that competes with you. And all of a sudden your ads aren't showing up, even though you're trying to pay them money to be part of their marketplace. So it's a very, how would you say, incestuous business model. Uh, and it's just designed for Amazon. Don't get confused. So, uh, so here's, a, here's a question for you. And we can tie in um, some of that 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 gray area that we talked about earlier, the 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 nebulous territory that you know is quantified somewhat by story selling, um, and this and this comes up um, quite a bit. Is 
you know, in order for brands to even have a fighting chance, whether they're on Amazon or, or they're not, is yes. to go beyond um, just the, the data, but to actually have some kind of meaningful mission, uh, a mission statement, a, sto- yeah. a story. Yeah, L- let's, let's talk about, uh, exactly, let's talk about, uh, what's the best way to put it, how to position yourself and how to hide from Amazon, because okay. there's, there are very few defensible places left. And you're absolutely right to hone in on the story and the tribe as the basis for that. What I think a lot of e-commerce companies really miss the point is that they're talking about, what's the best way to put it? They're talking about, well, we put up an online store and we sell this stuff and everybody else sells this stuff, buy your stuff from us. I mean, essentially that's a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. There's nobody wins in that scenario, right? So what you need to do is cultivate your own tribe. Don't farm other people's land. You're just a serf or a slave in that scenario. Okay, so you have to be able to attract people to you. That's the first thing that people need to understand. You have to be a magnet to attract the right kinds of customers and audience. And in order to do that, you're absolutely right. You have to have a differentiation. And that differentiation is in the form of, I would say, um, your origin myth, why you exist. You know, it's that classical story in the form of the hero's journey that you see from the Odyssey to Star Wars, because it's how we take in information. Life was good. Something went bad. I went on a quest. I picked up some unexpected allies. I eventually killed the dragon. And then there was a regreening of the earth. And now I'm trying to bring this mission to the world. So if you don't have that kind of passion, if you don't, if you can't clearly say why you exist and what you stand for, that then you're going to lose. That's it. It's that simple. A lot of the people that I talk to, they have, um, through their various means, been able to take control of their own life. They are um, what I would deem free under the circumstances of the society that we're in. They have, they can choose to fly. They can, they, they work, you know, a more, it's, they decide how many hours they want to work. They've delegated their tasks to other people, virtual assistants and, and all of that. And I mean, I've been talking to these people for a year now, and it is very difficult to not want to take a crack at it myself, which is why I am. Now, it seems to me that this is the only way for somebody to actually, you know, become free is to is to reach that that economic level of the six figure territory, the seven figure territory. And I don't see really any other way short of I don't know, going off grid and, and and seeing if there's any undiscovered tribes in the Amazon and just trying to like live, you know, completely, uh, well, you know, primal. So from your point of view is what have you seen to be the most, if possible, ethical, but really like the most um, uh, a humane, um, a tangible, realistic way for somebody to be as free as they can in the society? It's very high-minded, but wow, yeah, that's that's getting pretty philosophical for a podcast. But okay, I'll take a crack at it. Depends on where where you're starting out. The thing is, I I haven't been one of these, you know, kind of bleeding heart liberals necessarily, but I find myself thinking about privilege quite a bit. Now, I emigrated here from the former Soviet Union. I was lucky enough to get out. And um, when I was eight years old, my family emigrated here. And I came to America and I believed in the American dream, you know, and it was about, you know, just work hard and it's a meritocracy and everything's wonderful. But what I didn't realize is just by being white and coming from uh, parents that took an entrepreneurial risk, but to come to this country for a better life for me and my little brother. And by them having advanced degrees and good careers in engineering, when, when they landed here, you know, it, it all seemed like, yeah, that's, that's the narrative. But if you're swimming against riptides of 
you know, nobody in my family ever went to college or um, there's overt discrimination or, you know, I, I, I have to pay more for my mortgage um, because of the neighborhood I'm buying in or any number of things. When you, when you have all of this and of pulling on you and holding you back, I really think it's a disadvantage. So the discussion you're having and that I'm happy to have is that, yeah, that's, that's fine for educated white people in this country, you know, but that leaves out mass, massive groups. So I'm much more concerned with what kind of support systems can we set up? How can we help each other? What's cooperation look like in this day and age? The center is not holding. If everybody's out for their individual self-interest, then you get to live in a gated community somewhere with armed guards and German shepherds. Congratulations. If that, that's if you're quote unquote successful. That's not the society I want to live in. I went to public school all the way through graduate school. My kids are going through public school. I want to be in the mainstream society and say, hey, how do we pull together? Uh, since the kind of post-World War II period, there hasn't been that sense of collective mission. Everyone's talking about their freedoms these days, you know, as if their individual self-interest should govern everything. So that's my philosophical answer to your philosophical question. What I'd love to do, I mean, I know your 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 time is uh, is premium to to put it mildly, you know, because I I wasn't sure exactly how far along we can uh, we were going to be able to get into this, right? I just I just met you today, so more more you know more than happy to uh, to to continue along with these, you know, I I'll, I'll have some time to think about it as well, but uh, and, and I that's as that's as far as I'll go. I I just wanted to to hear your take on it. Absolutely, uh, and I am one of those. Uh, uh, I am one of those people you describe, I should, I should say, you know. Why? Well, I'm becoming more that way. My wife's a yeah. social worker, so I've just, you know, she's had a long-term effect on me. Instead oh, no, no, of being I'm, a rugged no, I'm, libertarian, I'm, the... I'm more of a, you know, call, my commie roots are coming back. I'm good with socialism, the kind they have in, in Europe where people don't, don't uh, have to think about food insecurity. Yeah. I mean, because it, it is, it is a, it, it is all, about, all our perspective, right? And I come from, I come from the arts. I come from, you know, a creative uh, um, uh, media background. And so, you know, for me, being going through school, you know, uh, K through 12 and then high school and constantly being in these structured environments and, you know, going through, in many cases, nightmares. I know it's it's all perspective, right? I'm sure you, you, you come from the Soviet Union where there was a lot more uh, nightmarish things going on there. Again, it's, it's, it's relative. And so, I mean, a lot of that just comes from like, like me, I really am just compelled and I just, I, I crave that freedom, you know, to, and if that, if that comes at a cost to me, then so be it. Uh, if it actually comes at a higher danger, then so be it. And and I think the you know the ongoing you know phraseology that we use on the show is that you know if we are running a business, we are going to be of service to others. You know we don't want to just amass our money Scrooge McDuck style and then and sort of run gold coins. We want to know that we're being compensated for doing something good for a large amount of people. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think willing that, to take that important. risk, willing to, to get the reward for it. And then one thing though, that uh, they've done this long-term longitudinal study, you know, they took a cohort of people that went to Harvard and some of their South Boston poor cousins, if you will, Southeast, and they've tracked them for 70 odd years. There've been four program directors over the, that span of time. And they're basically asking the questions of what makes a good life. And it turns out that you know, money is not the answer. I mean, there's statistical evidence that says being independently wealthy makes you 3% happier. Mm -hmm. 
that's a fact. And then, you know, that's a statistically significant effect, but it's only 3%. And what actually makes you happier are strong social contacts. We're highly social creatures. The last part of my book, Unleash Your Primal Brain, is called Hypersocial. And it talks about that. It, we cannot survive in isolation on our own. So it's about, again, this uh, myth of the entrepreneur, again, whether it's the Bezos or the Musk of the world or the Gates of the world is just that, a myth that's built on a lot of other people's cooperation and many, many turns of luck, I believe. But what we need to do is have healthy social relationships, um, good sleep and being engaged in the world, being curious, being part of a community. Those are the things, you know, friendships, strong ties like that. That's where you should be investing, quote unquote, if you want a good life, not not grinding it out harder by checking your email at 2 a.m. So that was um, uh, one take. There was a podcast you did in, in 2020, and one of the, the one of the terms that was brought up there is that you know being in isolation drives us insane. To literally, uh, to, That's yeah, right. to, and that was in uh, in October of 2020. And so I don't know, like six or seven months into the uh, uh, into the pandemic, and so. Once in a while, I do pandemic questions. I try not to bring it up too often, but have you? What have you uh, observed to be a? You know the 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 effects, or what could be the the long lasting, long term effects that we're going to be dealing with five years from now, ten years from now, as a result of this uh, hyper isolation. And then, what have you seen to be the pockets of um, you know innovation or, or or means that people have been able to uh, find ways to socialize even under the circumstances? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say that uh, overall, the effect has been hugely negative. And as as I mentioned, um, I talk about in my book, you know, we're highly social creatures. We shouldn't be isolated, just as mammals, we're pack animals. And if we're alone, we die. But as human beings, we have the largest close tie social groups of any mammal. So by far, uh, that famous Robin Dunbar number, the Dunbar number of 150. It's really, we have a close group of 100 to 200 people that we can keep very intimate track of and understand all the social dynamics in a group that size. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't have that, then you 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 can't function, uh, essentially. There's, um, so Zoom meetings are a very poor substitute for that. I'm sorry to say, it's just not the same. I'll give you a, a very close to my heart example, you know, I have two teenagers in the house, one's, you know, depressed, um, clinically, you know, and on medication for it. The other one had a real rough year with virtual school and failed three classes. And when I was signing up to retake a couple of those for summer school, this is San Diego Unified School District. So a big one with, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of students. Um, they said that, well, I'll actually, I'll let you guess. What um, percentage increase do you think there was in people that had to take summer school that basically failed at least one class over a normal year? Over a normal year? Yeah. 36%. How much? 36. Very, very specific, Mr. Spock. I like that. No, actually, 1,500 is the right answer. Okay. The so number of people failing yeah, at least one class. Under 100%. Okay, yeah, fair. The yeah. number of people failing at least one class that past school year was 1,500% higher. That's and that that's just so actually the I think there's different populations that are at risk for different reasons, but the one I'm kind of focused on is that 12 to 25 cohort. Basically, when you're outward focused before your brain's fully formed and you want to build social ties with your friends, not with your parents, you know, but with your friends and 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 peer group. And those are the kids that have suffered the most, the, the teenagers and young adults. 
Now that Shopify has upgraded to version 2.0, we needed to make sure we were up to speed. So we've released version 4.0 to ensure that we're 100% equipped to take advantage of the 2.0 revolution. If you haven't upgraded your store, head on over. And if you haven't gotten started, now's as good time as any. So to, to tie this back into in, into into business, you know, um, seemingly every brand over the last year has, in some way, shape, or form, commented on this. And you know, in, in, in spite of this uh, hyper isolation, you know, the most common term is like, you know, we're all in this together, or you know, we're all we're, we're all going to do this uh, t- together. Um, it's a, a lot of messaging on on unity. And to me, consistently came across as disingenuous. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, they have to say it because if they don't say it, they're, it's like, it's like social inflation. Like if they don't say it, then their, their value decays because they're not keeping up with the, 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 the rate of everybody else saying it um, in the, in, in the social Overton window. And so in, from your point of view, have you, I, I, I don't know exactly how often, you know, you're interacting with the different brands and businesses on a day-to-day basis at this point, but from your point of view, uh, have you found any businesses have actually like cut through the disingenuous side of it and has actually found ways to um, improve the social situation and, and help um, keep people connected in a more meaningful way? No, and I haven't. And that's not their job. And, and again, I, that's the problem is that, you know, businesses are there to make money. Social good organizations are there to fix the help their particular tribe, you know, your, your church or your synagogue or what have you. Um, and government is, has stepped back for 40 years. We've been dismantling anything at the federal level and a lot at the state level too, that were used to be support systems for people. Uh, so we're, we're kind of thrown to the wolves and there's nobody in the stop gap and you put a crisis like this and it, it, and it's very brittle stuff starts breaking. So you have, you know, huge you know, spikes in crime and domestic violence and suicide and depression. Uh, and that's just the price we're paying for how we structured the society, I believe, but no business hasn't done a good job. And other than PR lip service, uh, there's mm-hmm. nothing coming out of them. That's at all. I mean, that's what's the the finality on that. I, I didn't know, but I was certainly happy to ask that one. We're about uh, 10 minutes until we hit the hour mark. Just so I know, like how long can I keep you a little bit longer? Yeah, a few minutes, absolutely. A few minutes. Okay, cool. So here's one that I've really wanted to ask you. This is this is kind of this own theory that I'm that I'm working on. If you look at the the generational life expectancy, um, there's a pretty significant increase, and it's not that long ago. There were I would say, you know, a few generations past, you know, the life expectancy, you know, you get to the fifties, sixties, prior to that, by the time they're 30, they have 12 kids and they're fighting bears. But now if people are being, being born today, they have the prospect of living upwards to 150, 200. Well, it's news to me, but I'll take your word for it. Maybe not 200, but you know, certainly life expectancy can be a lot longer. So the realistically, let's say, you know, uh, 90, hundred consistently. I think that's, I think that's fair and realistic. Contending with, I think, a, a new kind of anxiety that is unprecedented because what I'm finding, and this is my own experience too, you know, being a, being a, a millennial is the, the milestones haven't changed, but the time it takes to achieve those milestones does that, that mental maturity to reach more of the, um, the, the adult level. Um, to me, I don't know, I'm, my, I, I compare my 30s now really to my dad's early 20s. Uh, finally, you know, at, that, at both, both of our points, we're finally like independent, are starting to, to, to earn um, our own, uh, you know, earn our own enough income, self-sustaining incomes. Have you uh, observed any um, changes in the, uh, in, in the physiology of, of, of the human mind based off the fact that 
you know, that people have a much more anxious future to, to, to look forward to? I'd say this uh, from an evolutionary perspective, even though one sense we're like uh, that proverbial insect frozen in amber, you know, our mind's not really changing. It's just not for the foreseeable future. At the same time, the rate of evolution actually has increased over the last 50,000 years. And there's a kind of a, a speeding up of human beings specifically, not all life. Um, and I think that if you look at IQ measurements, people are getting smarter every generation. And there, there hasn't been any break in that at all. Uh, so what used to be 100 average IQ 50 years ago, that's going to be kind of more on level these days. Uh, that's certainly true. You know, my kids and uh, their fluency with technology and the speed with which they can assimilate information in real time and video and streaming form is just uncanny. Um, so I play... Um, Word uh, or Boggle, which is kind of like a word uh, finder game. And my well, daughter, yeah, I, I know Boggle, yeah. Yeah, well, so I play it with my wife. When we do all right, she usually beats me. But our 14 year old daughter, who's played, I think it's called uh, it's like Word Scramble or something like that, where you do it on your phone, uh, her scores are usually more than my wife's and I combined when the three of us are playing. So it's just, it's not fair. We need some kind of handicap. So certainly there's, there's a quickening of, of that intelligence. I would say that's, that's one thing I've noticed. With, with your, with your expertise at, at your disposal and, and, and your educational background, um, you know, one thing I'm wondering as we, as we get close to wrapping this up is, um, you know, what drove you into the digital marketing for this? You know, I, was there other, um, verticals that you could have taken? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older than you. Uh, I'm not a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. And uh, so for me, it was like, uh, an, uh, I was preparing for a career that didn't exist. When I went to college, again, I had computer engineering and cognitive science as a background. Well, that's both the kind of the quantifiable and the qua uh, the, the quali quality stuff and the quantity stuff put together. It was a perfect background for internet marketing. So when the internet started, you know, the, the consumer internet in the mid nineties started taking off, I jumped in at the beginning of the internet era and started my first agency. So it was a perfect preparation for that career. I guess I, you could say, I couldn't have done better. I just didn't know the, what the career would be. And now I've kind of come full circle. Yeah. I applied it to marketing. As I mentioned, I made 1.2 billion in documented value for our clients during my agency days. But now I'm more concerned with the universal stuff, more durable stuff, as I mentioned, which is why I've shifted gears to the evolutionary psychology. I think it's a huge source of insight for both professional, cultural, and personal development. So I don't know if that answers it. I mean, the one thing that uh, I guess I, I'd love to get your take on as well, just to extract from that as well is, you know, you were, you were there in the trenches during the, you know, the dot-com uh, bubble and the doc and, and the burst. I, I, I just, I'm just fascinated to hear about, you know, what was your, uh, what was your experience of, of well, that? The, the journey yeah. from it. Yeah. Yeah. The journey was uh, like this. I started my first uh, essentially dot-com incubator in the mid nineties and we helped launch new dot-coms or acting CTO on their management teams, helped them for raised first rounds. It was still a cottage industry back then. We wrote some of the first dynamic database driven websites uh, for a variety of verticals. And then we moved into marketing those in the form of pay-per-click marketing. In the early days, again, a company called goto.com that became Overture, that became Yahoo Search. Um, and, but basically PPC as that was just starting out. And um, what we found is that we were driving high quality traffic from our PPC campaigns, but it wasn't converting. And we 
so we got into affiliate marketing and started you know, doing PPC arbitrage for on a performance basis, but traffic was quality where we were sending it to was crap. And so I saw the bigger opportunity as being the website and the quality of the website. And that's how we got into and became one of the premier agencies in what's now known as conversion rate optimization improving website experiences. Um, so it kind of became the tail wagging the dog. We sold off our PPC management and our uh, super affiliate side and just focused on improving web experiences. So that, that's kind of the, the arc of my internet marketing career. And, uh, and I did say that I was going to ask you about landing pages. So I'm just going to make sure I get this question in before we, before we wrap up, um, which is, you know, you've seen um, um, quite uh, quite quite a few of them, and you've certainly seen ones that have um, uh, that that are from conventional brands that you know most of us mm-hmm. think of at the top of our heads. So, what have been the consistent things, um, positive and negative, that uh, ha- have made landing pages, you know, good or frankly? Well, I'll tell person? you some some common problems uh, sure. with landing pages. I'll just do them rapid fire. First of all. As I mentioned earlier, I think most of us suffer from greedy marketer syndrome, which means we want to squeeze the bottom of the sales funnel and hope money comes out. Uh, So we don't really support the whole customer journey, and we should. You actually have an advantage if you start a conversation with me early in the customer journey before you can sell me anything because you become the exclusive source of information for me. So if you have the right to communicate with me, that's very powerful. So I think designing stuff for the complete customer journey instead of bottom feeding at the point of sale is really, really important. So content marketing is a big part of that. But I don't mean blog posts or frequent tweets. I mean, like durable, downloadable stuff or informational videos that are wrapped right into your web experience and and have a big effect. And that also includes email uh, follow-up sequences that are non-promotional, but are more educational in nature as you work people right. down the funnel. So, so that's that's one aspect is um, supporting the complete customer journey is often very much missing on websites. Um, another thing that companies get wrong is they think that they should be se- uh, selling sunshine and unicorns. They're positive. You know, our, our service or product is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, and you should buy it because you'll have whiter teeth and fresh breath and, you know, marry a good looking spouse. Well, you know, really from an evolutionary psychology standpoint, we should be talking a lot about the negatives to get me off my comfortable spot, to get me to make any kind of decision. I can't be satisfied. I have to feel a lot of pain. And the bigger that pain, the more value I assign to the solution. That literally means monetary value. So just like they say in the workout world, no pain, no gain. If you can't create a pain in me, you're not going to gain or benefit from it. So the proper way to market is to take me off of my comfortable spot in the middle, drive me down into the depths of hell and despair, and then back out into the light and show me what life is like in heaven. And that contrast between heaven and hell, if you will, uh, is the value I'm going to place on your solution. So don't start talking to me about how wonderful life is. Talk to me about my problems and rub salt into the wound. That makes sense. I mean, if somebody if uh, somebody happens to be in a positive state of mind and they just see more positivity, they just say, yeah, that's great. And then they move on. Exactly. They yeah. don't feel the need to change. Pain is the teacher. Pain is the thing that motivates us to do something about this unpleasant situation we're in. And the longer term you make that, the more you dig at the underlying implications of that, the full cost of staying on the current path, that it's really not okay. That's where you start. So for example, if you're selling tooth whitening, 
Some people would say, oh, you'll have whiter teeth and a great smile. And that's how a lot of commercials on TV are. I would go with this approach. Are those yellow, grayish yellow teeth uh, making you embarrassed in social situations? Do people think you have resting bastard face? Are you having problems getting a date because you never smile? Are you going to die alone and your cats are going to eat you because no one's checking up on you and they're starving? That's, that's how you sell tooth whitening. And a lot of companies say that's off brand for us. We, we, we never say mean things. We don't even about our competitors or we never even compare to what it's like not having our product or service. I think that's fighting with one hand tied behind your back or actually both hands. I got, I got to say the way you contextualize it is unlike anyone else uh, as um, means for contextualizing it a heck of a takeaway to, to, to wrap this bad boy up. So uh, let's do that. Uh, Tim, Again, it's been great to meet you. It's been great to talk to you. I hope you know some uh, at some point down the line, I get a, I get another chance uh, to you know follow up on some of the threads that we unraveled today. Um, you know, because I think for for me, you know, I I do this show. I was like, you know, there, I like debating. Preferably, I like you know knowing what I'm talking about, but I don't always have that luxury. So you know, but to to want to like you know turn it into a debate for the entirety of the episode is like, mm, no, I still got I still got my obligations to do for in uh, for, for for the company and to and my lovely audience who uh, come here to. Uh, well, you know, have have the economics experience. So, all of that out of my system. I just want to say thanks. This has been a fantastic episode. I'm really happy to have uh, shared an hour with you today. Yeah, and if, if people want more information about um, my background or how I can help uh, with e-commerce uh, consulting, just go to timash.com. And if you're interested in my book, Unleash Your Primal Brain: Demystifying How We Think and Why We Act, just go to primalbrain.com. In fact, you can. Go to primalbrain.com and uh, pick a chapter out of the table of contents, and I'll send you the chapter of your choice uh, as a PDF. Okay, fantastic. I think I might just do that myself. All right. Well, uh, that actually was the you know the the second half of the final question, just to let the audience know how they can make contact. The other part of it, just for the fun of it, if uh, there's any last bits of wisdom or like a Chinese proverb you you enjoy sharing, you're more than welcome to. But otherwise, uh, we are good to go. Yeah, I'd say um, we we touched on sleep earlier. <laughs> go to sleep. Put your phone in another room. Don't sleep in the same room with your phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get it. Get an alarm clock, people. I've had an alarm clock for the last yeah. few months. It's Ten bucks on Amazon. To know that like the difference between having to actually turn on my phone in the morning is just enough to kind of like resist getting into that bad habit stack. So uh, I uh, I'm I'm totally on board with that. All right. To my audience, as always, it is an honor and a privilege to collect this information. Do I use it for my own benefit? You bet. And share it with all of you. So one more thank you to Tim Ash for the road. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure. Same here. All right. Everybody else, take care. And we will check in soon. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>